This episode of See Here is brought to you by Brian Wilson. Because Mike Love is an asshole. Episode 25 of the See Here podcast. We're a quarter of a hundred. I don't know if that's some sort of milestone. I'll consider it one. Thanks for joining us. And on this episode, as per usual, I'm joined by the man from Bath, Mr. Bernie Stickwell. Good. Um, it's evening. Good evening, Bernie. It is. Good evening. Yes. Hello. Hello. Uh, now, normally, I'd be uh, introducing... Our other compadre in arms, Mr. Tim Merrill. However, he was so upset after last month's recording of our episode on Ishtar that he needed to go away for a long break. He, 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 he's having, he, he's, he's sipping lots of piña coladas, which I think is his drink of choice, in Thailand. Tim, please rest up, my friend, and we look forward back to uh, having you uh, on next month's episode. But we have two other wonderful people who put up their hands to take your place for this month. And uh, so I will introduce, first of all, a man who is returning to the show, a man who puts the C into Colossal, Mr. Frank Santo Padre. Colossal? Colossal. Uh, You'd have to listen. Talk about inside an inside joke. <laughs> well, thank you, Boris, for having me back. It's a thrill. Uh, thank you. It's, it's a thrill to have you back. Uh, and we actually, there's, uh, w- before I announce the uh, the film that we'll be discussing, we actually sort of have your podcast, Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, and Gil and Frank's Amazing Colossal Obsessions has a, another link to uh, the film of the week, but we'll get to that shortly. And, and we have a new person, as you might have heard in the background, to uh, the podcast, a first-time co-presenter, and we very much welcome Ms. Tish Greer. Thank you very much for joining us, Tish. Hello, hello. I am so happy to be with you guys today. We're, we're and, thrilled. Yeah, and discussing something that's just a giant passion of mine since I was a little, little, little kid. Oh, wow. So, yeah, a little kid in Hawaii, no less. In Hawaii? <laughs> Which is not... Wow. Yeah, when I was tiny, that was the first time I heard the Beach Boys. And unfortunately, I'm now in Massachusetts, where it's cold. <laughs> so, wow. The surf's not so good in Massachusetts, I understand. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. But you did have a Beach Boys song name. Not a Beach oh, There I go. A Bee Gees. Bee Gees song. Oh, I, I was thinking yeah. the same thing. Yes, and... Yeah, and you know the way that that song is, it it really is very Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> so I should probably at this at this stage make note of what the purpose of us all getting together is today. I'd credit this to Tish and to Frank. Actually, come to think of it, that the reason that we're going to be covering uh, the film that we're going to be covering today 
is Love and Mercy from last year. And I think this has got to be the most recent film that we would have ever discussed on this podcast. We tend to sort of like, you know, go a bit back into film's history. Maybe the other most recent couple of films, it might have been uh, Walk Hard and Good Vibrations. <laughs> Not, no link to today's film, but I think uh, I discussed with Hank Hellman about a year ago or so, the uh, punk film from Ireland, Good Vibrations. But uh, yes, this is probably the most recent film on record. And so I'll, I'll get into discussing with uh, Frank and Tish why it was that uh, this film came to be chosen fairly shortly. But Tish, the floor is yours uh, because we, you know, we know about Frank and you know, Bernie and I are regulars on this show. So it gives a little bit of a background as to your love of film and music and what it is that you do? Oh, God, these things go back for me so, so very far. Well, I'm a writer and a freelance journalist and right now working, doing a lot of essay writing and a lot of current events-related essay writing for two online publications. Mm -hmm. uh, one is called The Broadside. That's T-H-E hyphen B-O... R A D. Well, I have to spell it myself. <laughs> Broad, B-R-O-A-D. <laughs> No spell check on his life, Tish. Exactly. <laughs> if it wasn't for a spell check, I'd be dead. Thebroadside.com, you know, hyphens in between, and for midcenturymodern.com, uh, which is a lot of discussion about things of the 60s and 70s and 80s, where I wrote an essay there recently, not recent, recent, about a month or so ago about Ben Mendelsohn and how a lot of women of a certain age are sort of attracted to him for some ungodly reason. <laughs> uh, yeah, and as I said, this stuff has been just a love for me my whole life. And now finally getting around to talking about film and music more and writing about it a little bit more. Although my current writing obsession is third wave feminism and how they're screwing up stories about the 1970s but that's a whole different rant <laughs> so i will i will get into that one here because that just gets really bogged down but as i as i mentioned too about about the beach boys uh, getting to know you know and listening to them the first memories of seeing people on tv or musical bands mine don't start with the beatles mine starts with the beach boys in the day of clark five when my dad was stationed in hawaii right. and you know this stuff is kind of just embedded in there and having that you know wonderful ability you know life of growing up with just this amazing music in an amazing period of time i mean yeah it could cause anybody to get obsessed <laughs> well i think <laughs> you know, okay so well since you've um decided to already touch on uh, talking about the beach boys what we'll do is we'll go to yeah, a a quick break it. playing the uh, the trailer for the film and then we'll launch uh, straight away into our discussion of the Beach Boys and then we'll uh, get into talking about the film of last year Love and Mercy directed by Bill Pollard so uh, we'll be back in a moment and uh, we'll get into discussing about the Beach Boys and a myriad of related subjects you're listening to See Here Excuse me oh. Can I help you today? I'd like to buy a car Hi I'm Dr. Eugene Landy Do you know who this man is? Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys Ah we all grew up in California. The brothers here, Dennis, Brian, and Carl. So I listen to those harmonies. I would teach them to my brothers, and we'd all sing. Listen to me, I'm going on and on. What about you, Melinda? Why don't you have a boyfriend? You broke my heart. You shouldn't have done that. Do you hear the new Beatles? We can't let them get ahead of us. Got all kinds of new ideas, new sounds, new instruments. 
You think we could get a horse in here? I'm picking up We've played with everyone. Sinatra, Elvis, you. Blowing our minds. If you want to continue to see him, you should know. Brian is a very, very sick man. Your voices. I didn't tell you because I didn't want to scare you away. The talking in your head, that's part of the song? Jesus Christ. It's part of the music. You are not hungry. You think you're hungry. Stop! Stop! Brian, time for your pills. Come on. I may not. I need you to report to me your thoughts, your feelings. His thoughts, his feelings. I'm giving you unprecedented access. He's my legal guardian. He's protecting me. No, he's over medicating you. Can you swim? <laughs> Brian will not be able to see you anymore. You can't do that, Gene. Yes, I can. I have to say to myself five times a day, I love you. Does it work? I don't know. Sometimes I wish I had somebody else to say it to. God only knows what I'd be without you. I do not want to be one more person who wants something from you. So I'm going to walk away. Why can't I be with her, Gene? For the same reason, man, that you cannot be with anybody. God only knows what I'd be without I'm going to beat this, and I'm going to beat you! To your life. You and me, we're gonna walk out of here right now and everything will change. Let's go surfing now, everybody's learning how. Come on a safari with me. Come on a safari with me. And we're back. Let's uh, get into a discussion before the movie proper about the Beach Boys and any myriad of related subjects. And uh, really, I think. When we decided that we we're going to uh, cover this film for the podcast, it seemed like you know, very, very fertile ground. There's absolutely a treasure trove, given that the Peach Boys have a, you know, a very dramatic history, and there's really only a fraction of it covered in the film. Unusually, normally I'd defer to our guests, but Bernie, you're the only one out of uh, the, the four of us whose opinion about the Beach Boys I have no idea about. I know that you know, they're held near and dear to Tish and Frank's heart, so... I think I'd like to start with you. What are your thoughts on the Beach Boys as a group? Were they the sort of group that ever appealed to you? When did you first hear them? Were they big in England? Uh, I think they were relatively big in England. Um, I'm a little younger than you guys, so um, I I don't quite remember late 60s, early 70s. I was born in 71, so uh, I guess I kind of remember them more from just songs like Good Vibrations, which was, you know, they were already by mid to late 70s, kind of classic timeless songs that would show up on sort of classic rock radio and so on. So I certainly remember them from there. And the first Beach Boys album I bought was, I bought Pet Sounds when that came out on CD in about, gosh, I don't know, about 88? Mm. Because that was, you know, I was kind of in my uh, mid to late teens then and I was really seriously getting into music. Uh, You know, it was around that period where, certainly, you know, you you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me that the the sort of, the canon, the, the critical canon began to really push Pet Sounds as... You know, this really is one of the greatest LPs ever written. Forget all that Beatles nonsense. (laughs) 
this is you know th- this is the one um and you know prior to that I, I knew good vibrations and california girls and uh, i'd never really given them much serious thought mm-hmm. as uh, musicians and artists and songwriters and, and so forth uh, so I, I bought that and i was just floored by it it really is um genuinely one of the greatest lps ever recorded i think so yeah i, I guess that was my real sort of induction into into the world of the uh, the beach boys I'm, I'm certainly not an obsessive mm-hmm. in in the sense that um actually i think pet sounds is the only album of theirs that i still own right but of course over the years you know i've read books and i know the story it's and you know smiley smile and smile finally coming out and uh the, you know the, all the stuff we'll be talking about uh, you know it's portrayed in the film and so on so i, I would certainly say i am uh, i'm a fan of the beach boys it's <laughs> in a nutshell Excellent, uh, cause i, I gotta confess when we sort of like decide we're going to be doing this i was genuinely wondering is this going to be in bernie's wheelhouse or not i mean not, <laughs> well, yeah, uh, but... from a music perspective don't give away your thoughts on the film just yet but i was thinking sure will musically will this will this be in your wheelhouse well, so um you know me well enough, Morris, to know that I can be a bit um, contrary about certain things. You, you, you uh, can, but on the other hand, well, I guess that's why you like this yeah. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> that and the fact it was good. Yeah, true, true. Yeah. It, it was good. Um, Frank, it, Tim is the villain in this trio. Uh, oh, t- okay. Tim was Tim was not sold on the idea of you guys talking about Ishtar? Oh, no, no. He wasn't He wasn't sold on the film. You should, you should listen back to last month's episode. But uh, we'll, Yeah, we'll yeah I think he was in physical pain at certain points during the, uh, the recording, <laughs> wasn't he? So. <laughs> so, Regardless of what you think about Ishtar, the, the Williams songs are, uh, are a treat. Oh, they, well, absolutely. In a uh, in a humorous yes. fashion, yes, we, um, we we discussed last month that you know you don't walk out of the cinema singing them the way you sing West Side Story songs, but yes, no. they are, but they serve their purpose. Yeah, but you can't intentionally write bad songs like that unless you can actually write songs. You yes. need to know you know how to do it correctly before you do it incorrectly. So it, it makes yeah, it adds a lot to the film. Yeah, well, so. we had we were lucky enough to have Paul Williams on our podcast, and he he talked about that very thing. The, the difficulty of, of sitting down with the assignment of writing a bad song. Mm. But I think he achieved it. So, so let's, I want to ask you, Frank, about good songs. I want to know mm-hmm. um, your earliest memories of uh, listening to the Beach Boys and how, how did uh, surf music treat a, a New York City boy? I'm still reeling from Bernie's comment about the, how he's much younger than, than, than the rest of us. <laughs> What? But, uh, well, I you know, say I'm... much younger, Frank. From your voice, I assumed you were probably maybe about 46, 47, so there's only a year or two in it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's close enough. <laughs> I'll be, I'll be... You know, Morris, I don't think I can pinpoint. It's funny, I remember hearing the Beatles for the first time because I had an older sister and she brought home I Want to Hold Your Hand on a single. Wow. And I remember that was... Oh, a, I did too. That, yeah. yeah. But I don't, I don't remember per se hearing the Beach Boys for the first time. It was one of those, one of those acts where it kind of becomes the soundtrack of your life. It was always there. Yes. The fact is, it's like trying to remember the first time I heard Good Vibrations or I was born in 61. Me too, Frank. <laughs> oh, there you go. We'll form a support group later. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I really became interested in Brian uh, later in life uh, because he's such a fascinating character. And uh, interestingly, I was living in, in West Hollywood for a number of years. I was living in I, I, 10 lost years in, in Los Angeles, my Nathaniel West period. But And I, I knew a lot of people. I worked in television for a while. I, I, I was saying to my wife, I never, ever got starstruck. I took pride in that around anybody that I met. I met a lot of famous people, but... 
Brian Wilson. I ran into Brian Wilson in a 7-Eleven. Oh, of wow. All places. Not, El- about not Elvis. No, it was Brian Wilson and his driver in, in a 7-Eleven at about 2 o'clock in the morning in West Hollywood. Uh-huh. And uh, and I was speechless. And I, I, I tried- When was this, Frank? Was this oh, so, God, during 90, the... 97, 98? Was, this was post uh, Dr. Eugene. Yes, yes. The yes. first time I okay. ever really became lost the ability to speak in the in the presence of a famous person. That's how much admiration I, I always right. had for. Him. So I can't remember the first time I heard the Beach Boys, but I've always I've always been um, uh, moved by his talent, and that's why I was so attracted to, to this film. Right. Yeah. Tish, we we spoke a little bit about this yesterday, and you made uh, a very good point because I mean I'd sort of been thinking a, a lot about Brian's music in comparison to the pop canon but you went and made the very good point and I know that like in America there's a lot of talk about the great American songbook or uh, you know the, the great American composers and rather sort of than comparing Brian to uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon you went and made the comparison oh well you know he's more like another Copeland or another Gershwin. So do you want to talk a little bit about that side of things? Interesting. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, the thing is, when you look at pop music of that time, when the Beach Boys first hit, they first chart in 1961, when we, Frank and I were born, um, comparable songs during that time period, you had things like the theme from A Summer Place, which was, you know, a top 10 pop hit on AM radio. Which is what we had. There was no FM yet. And there was, at that time, there was a mix of, you'd have what were, what they would call the, you know, male vocalist, female vocalist, and then you'd have the young kids mixed in there. And there was also what was called surf guitar at that time. And surf guitar didn't have vocals. Brian Wilson was the first person really to put, and they were kind of neck and neck with uh, Jan and Dean, another surf oriented, the first two groups to have a vocal. And what Brian does as time goes on, and he, he begins to synthesize all of these different movements and sounds and stuff, which brings the music into a whole different away from just the poppy pop it into more of a composition um a orchestral small orchestral composition type of music yeah along the lines of a gershwin or a copeland and he did admire gershwin so was one of his influences and because it comes in the part of the 20th century that is very youth focused a lot of music snobs as i would call them they sort of discount it and he did do it so much younger than other composers that's part of his genius and also what is part of the way his brain is wired and his his madness he had to do this stuff when he was so young um and he was so incredibly gifted just the way he merged so many different things yeah so he he's really he's up there his work is up there and i think it's going to still take a little time for the music traditionalists to take his work seriously which is really sad he's amazing dude i I mean and and to be a survivor i like to think that you know because you know bernie went and brought up that you know when uh, frank had run into brian was you know 97 98 and it was you know post landy and I, i tend to think it was the early to mid 90s about the time of the documentary i just wasn't made for these times was when the sort of the new wave of Brian or the Church of Brian, as you might want to you might want to say, that he 
probably has been given the reverence and he has been given that respect that maybe he wasn't afforded because you know, we know that like the, the late 60s post, post smiley smile there was that whole period of four or five years or something like that, or maybe longer, where the Beach Boys, oh yeah, they were considered a joke. But it seems that since that mid-90s period, he's been treated with that sort of reverence, and I wouldn't mind imagining that there are a lot of other people who feel that you know he is held in the same esteem as your Gershwins and your Copelands and your Leonard Bernsteins. And Leonard Bernstein himself, I'm sure I've seen some footage, went on record as saying that he thought Brian was brilliant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think I think this. Well, this as, as I mentioned yesterday, this year he's doing a tour. He's bringing Pet Sounds and doing it live. I know. I'm, I'm, I, I'm seeing him in six weeks. I can, I can't wait. I'm still trying to convince my husband to go this summer. He's going to be near me, and I think that that's really going to solidify his legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, the more people that go to see him live, I think yeah. sometimes as well, it it takes. It takes time for people to catch up. I think, you know, sometimes you need a bit of uh, distance between the work and a, a real genuine sort of critical appraisal of it. Yeah, some, you know, sometimes, you know, somebody or their art has to be vindicated by history, I guess. But certainly we're at that period now where I think he is getting his due. So. I think if you to believe some of the musicians that we see in, you know, documentaries like I Just Wasn't Made For These Times or the one that you sort of brought to our attention Bernie the Beach Boys and Satan you know you listen to some of these older musicians they all say oh I heard Pet Sounds at the time and it blew my mind so if we're to take them at their word it seems like the musicians got it at I, the uh, time I have to admit I always take those kind of documentaries with uh, with a pinch of salt when, when you get all those kind of talking heads yep. I think a lot of those talking heads are in it for their own benefit in a way a lot of ego is there uh, you know yeah I, I know what I'm talking about I'm going to uh, <laughs> come along and say how Having great Brian that, Wilson and the Beach Boys were the non was documentary is, is fabulous though yeah 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 that it's, was... yeah it's pretty good for yeah for that kind of documentary definitely yeah yeah I think it's a very fair even handed one it's not too um too what's the word uh, uh reverent in its yes. treatment of uh, I mean it's there but it's not it's not too fawning at the same time you know there's there's also a doc called I don't know if it's out of print called Endless Harmony I've, yeah, I've, made, I've got a copy of that I haven't haven't watched that in a long time. I didn't get the chance yeah, to well, well it. Yeah, well worth it. All right, so I wanted to ask you guys, so we've, we've focused a lot here, as I guess is the nature of this episode, on Brian, or in particularly... Um, okay, so no, I'll come to that question in a minute. But um, the, the film and a lot of the talk about uh, the Beach Boys tends to be particularly about the Pet Sounds and Smile album, which only got like a release of sorts in the last few years. In my own collection, I've got, you know, albums like Sunflower, Friends, Surf's Up and Holland and a really absolutely cracking live album from 1973, which when they got uh, Blondie Chaplin and Ricky Fattar into the lineup and they became like a rock band, not just a pop band. They became like a really solid rock band. But I don't hear people talking much about those albums or about the early albums. I mean, we know about all the early great singles. They were considered a singles band. Forgive my ignorance here, Morris. Was 
Brian Wilson still writing the music for those later albums? There was... Or was, was it the rest of the Beach Boys were writing more of the music at that point because the, he was in bed or whatever? Oh, in the, in, with the early albums? The, the, so things like Sunflower and so on, the later sort of early 70s stuff. There was, there was a mixture. There was some Brian contributions, but you certainly were getting contributions as well from Bruce Johnston. Dennis was coming more into his own as a songwriter, and I have to say that his solo album... Oh, uh, my God, yeah. Pacific Ocean Blue is just... It's an amazing record, really. Yeah. Deserves, uh, deserves a lot of attention, and thank goodness that exists. But, yeah, so, yeah, they all, they all were making contributions, and uh, I think in the case of the Surf's Up album, they used, like, the Surf's Up track, which had been recorded, from the Smile era and mm-hmm. Till I Die I'm not sure I can't remember if that was like a new one or if that was from the Smile era but basically he, he wasn't doing very much he'd lost all faith and he was lying in bed and he was you know, up to his gullet in all sorts of medications and the like or, or all sorts of drugs at any rate have any of you heard any of those early albums I mean I'm not just talking about the singles like you know I Get Around and, and the like uh, so, so Tish you were, you were so Okay, so are you a fan of those early albums? Are they great singles with filler, or where do you stand on them, Tish? They are fascinating because they really are a... They give you a snapshot of how a band had to make an album back in those days. And you see it actually in some of the early Rolling Stones and the early Beatles albums as well, where you will have original compositions by the bands, but then they'll have to throw in remakes of other people's music. There's one of the albums has a Beatles version of Louie Louie, which, I mean, at that particular time, we're talking maybe 64, I think everybody was doing a version of Louie Louie. It became the frat song um, of the time. It was the big drinking song. They also do covers of, I think they do a couple of, a a Ronette song or, or some other, but it was not uncommon to fill an album with a, another band, a version of another song. I think even... Barbara Ann was done by several other groups. Well, uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned the Ronettes, and Brian is on record as saying that he thinks Be My Baby is the greatest song ever written. Yeah, I've heard him say I think, that. Yeah, I think they did a version of it on, on one of their albums, and it might be shut, what they called, what was shut titled down. Shut Down Volume 2. Yep. That might be the one. Um, I'm now, next week there's a record show here, and I'm going on a quest to get all of those old albums. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Because they're... They're fascinating timepieces, and it, what, like I said, within it, you hear their sound emerging, but you also hear them practicing their musicianship and Brian's production skills on these hits, songs that were hits for other bands. It's interesting. So let me ask you, with all the focus that we get on Brian, I mean, it seems obvious in a way that the achievements of the others has been undersold, but... You know, I've already gone and mentioned Pacific Ocean Blue by Dennis as a really great album, but do you guys have any thoughts on the achievements of the other members of the band? And don't worry, we'll save a special section for Mike Love. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but in, in well, terms- talking of, uh, of Mike Love, I, I read an interesting piece uh, I found on the internet yesterday that was um, talking about uh, the three kind of evil, not evil people, but the, the, the three most maligned people in Brian Wilson's life and what they actually contributed to his uh, his ability to, to write songs and to the Beach Boys in general mm-hmm. and obviously it was his father and uh, Dr. Landy and um, Mike Love yes uh, and it was saying uh, you know the general consensus is Mike Love is not the uh, nicest 
closest of people, but without him, they wouldn't have uh, kept the kind of live presence. And uh, so, you know, certainly throughout the 70s, they toured a lot, apparently. And uh, his biggest strength was that he was a sort of viable frontman because the rest of the group didn't really, you know, have that sort of frontman charisma. So, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of damning with faint praise, really, isn't it? But. Well, I mean, if, if you look at any of that live footage on YouTube, and there's plenty of it, he doesn't look so much like a front man as more like just a guy who can't play an instrument. So, that's not me. That's my saying. But I thought it was an interesting point. He does, yeah. He just stands there and glowers, and it's kind of you know we're singing these songs. Give me my check. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> that's always the vibe I get. He also goes in a different direction than them personally because he gets into all the transcendental meditation stuff, and he really gets into it. Right. Whereas the uh, you know the other guys go totally different. And Carl always seemed to me to be like the baby brother. He took that baby. He's like, all right, I'm just following you guys. And Dennis was the one that really had talent of his own and just didn't get to shine as much because his life ended up getting cut short, sure, yeah. which is a shame. Sorry, Frank, you were going to say something a minute ago? Uh, no, no, I was I was uh, think, thinking about what uh, what Tish was saying about the, the, the meditation. It's, it's interesting. Uh, I'm reading interviews with him, and he's saying that one of the reasons he thinks he's so vilified is because he was the clean-cut one, that he didn't do drugs. Rationalization for some for some of his behavior. <laughs> right. But he he looked so he looked more hippie than the mm-hmm. other ones. Yeah. Later well, he on, he grew the beard, didn't he? And he yeah. Uh, yeah 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 yeah. I was Sorry. I was reading years ago um, this biography of the Beach Boys, which I think you said you'd read as well, Frank, called Heroes and Villains. And I think there's like a, a half a page in the book that because you know, it also everywhere else it had been describing about all the sordid activities <laughs> and wife swapping and oh yeah. Um, they, well, Mike Love's wife had an affair with Dennis Wilson, right? And then, yeah. and, and and as did his so-called illegitimate daughter or something like that at a later wow. stage. But I think it once it, it's describing all these sordid activities, and it says Al Jardine has been married to the same wife for many years, and he's had the work ethic, and he's rolled up every day from nine to five. So there's, he's really the boring one, and there's nothing much to say. So if it comes down to clean cut, really, it's Al Jardine, not so much Jardine, Mike. Yeah. Just just Mike Love doesn't you know, didn't, didn't take drugs after he uh, found. I always yeah. thought Al Jardine looked really kind of out of place. He looks more like a, a janitor or something than he does. A, uh, well, a actually, pop star. <laughs> according to the book, he was actually, um, like I think, at college on a uh, on a football scholarship or on a gridiron scholarship. Mm-hmm. Or something oh, really? Like that. He was he was he was an athlete, and he just okay. decided would rather hang out with musicians and other jocks or something like that. Paid off for him. Sure <laughs> yes, did, yeah. certainly did. Certainly did. There's also, yeah. as, as long as you brought up the book, Catch a Wave is another uh, a terrific book uh, about Brian's life by a guy named, uh, i trying to remember the author's name, Peter Ames Carlin. Okay. Also a very good read for anybody that wants to know more about the topic. What was the uh, central conceit in that book, Frank? Because I know like in, in Heroes and Villains, it really didn't focus terribly much on the music. It focused more on the private lives of the rich and famous, as it were. So is, is Catch a Wave more about the culture? and A little and bit more about his process, which is which is to me the most interesting part. I mean, I when, when watching Love and Mercy, as as interesting as the stuff with Murray was and and Mike and certainly the Landy stuff and Giamatti is just riveting. 
in that part. The, the, to me personally, the stuff that I found most engrossing about the film was the, were the, the scenes when he's in the studio. Definitely going to be talking about <laughs> talking. that. Uh, oh yeah, I mean that's that's and that's that's there's a lot of that in Catch Away. There's a lot about the process. That sounds like a uh, book I need to see. Uh, I need to read. Trying, trying to capture the, the you know the, the magic of his process and was it you know was it his his hearing loss? Uh, you know how the, how the music comes to him has always been a fascinating topic. Those are those are my favorite scenes in the film, by the way. Yes, uh, look, I think we're going to have uh, a lot to say because uh, about that section of the film as, as well as the film in general, because uh, I think oh, yeah. that that's certainly something that the writers and the directors had really wanted the film to be about. But before we leave this section to go into talking about the film per se, as I said, I'd read this Heroes and Villains book several years ago, and you know, came away with with the image, oh, you know, gee, you know, that Mike Love fellow was uh, not exactly the nicest of guys and you know Murray Wilson was an asshole but you know when when I brought it up with you guys saying oh yeah we'll, we'll find some time to talk about Mike Love and the consensus was you know Ooh, uh, what what an ass Ooh, uh, he is a bastard isn't he <laughs> and I, I found a website that listed like about a thousand things you want to know why Mike Love's an asshole here's a list of them <laughs> and Okay, so here's here's some of the things that they went and wrote. Taking credit for writing Smile after it was released, after years of shitting on it. He controls the Beach Boys' name, so he was able to not renew the contract with Brian, Al, and David after the 50-year reunion. Uh-huh. He sued Al Jardine for touring under the name Al Jardine of the Beach Boys. Oh, yes. <gasps> he donated money to Tipper Gore's cause for censorship. Yep. And I... <laughs> Um, the, only, the only musician to have done so, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Must have endeared uh, him greatly to Frank Zappa. Oh, shit, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, what's his name of Twisted Sister? And, and John Denver. And Jello. Jello Biafra would, uh, wouldn't have been a fan of his either, I'm sure. No. But to me, this is the biggest sin as to why Mike Love is a prick. He wrote Kokomo. Uh, <laughs> oh God! Yes! Oh gee, no! <laughs> so, so there's. I, take this, I, it's, I believe it's their most successful single. What does it say, say about the general so public? <laughs> Financially speaking, anyway, I, I could be wrong about that, but I seem to remember reading it. No, I think I've read the same thing, Frank. It's heartbreaking. <laughs> well, it was in the movie Cocktail. I mean, come on. <laughs> there you go. Right, that may have had something to do with it. Yeah, Jeez. you know, everybody who was a twenty-something young guy at that time. Wanted to go down to Florida, to the Keys, to be cool like Tom Cruise <laughs> and get broad. You know, so that song With did Coke it for that. Playing in the background, yeah. Jeez. Yeah, exactly. You know. Meanwhile, there were a whole other bunch of us going, oh, God, no. <laughs> stop. <laughs> Please, stop, make it stop. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Love, I, I think certainly from that list, that small list you're reading there, I think it's apparent Mike uh, Mike Love was not a musician, he was a businessman. Yeah. That's, that's what it was all about to him. Because certainly, again, we'll touch on this, but um, certainly there's points in the in the film after Pet Sangs has, has been released when he's saying we need to get back to the old stuff and, you know, sell some singles and, you know, have some hits again. And it's, it's all about the money. It's all about the business for him. That's, you know, that's the impression we, I get. Even from a pragmatic stance, that didn't make very much sense because about the time that Brian was changing things up with his approach to pet sounds and then on to smile, the rest of America or American musicians were also doing the same. I mean, yeah, we were getting... I mean, was that about the time where, you know, Frank Zappa had gone and released like his early albums and 
there was Captain Beefheart and and yeah, it was all kind of 66, 67, I guess, wasn't it? So, so the, the fact that he was saying we need to get back to our old sound, whereas a lot of American kids were listening, were tuning their ears into different sounds as well. So even from a commercial perspective, he should have thought, well, hang on, well, the, the kids are now starting to listen to that. Well, you know, maybe Brian's onto something here, and he sort of didn't want to change. I mean, yes, I, I, I agree with you, it's for a commercial perspective, but it doesn't make sense. He was an old man in a young man's body as well, wasn't he? It was, um, yeah. You know, I, I think he's, his uh, his his kind of sensibilities were probably more in line with uh, Murray Wilson's than they were Brian's. By the so, way, I, I'd I'd like to take a moment to remind all of us that the man is rather litigious. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, we'll, we'll so, be, don't worry, Frank. We'll be naming this episode. Uh, <laughs> see here, episode twenty-five, Problem Child Two. Yeah, X X X. I'm uh, my real name isn't Bernie anyway. It's a pseudonym, so uh, I, I can be as mean as I like. It's not going to track me down. Oh, holy <laughs> there's, there's an interview with him in Rolling Stone, Morris, and he's denying that he that he maligned uh, uh, pet sounds. He's just, you know he's saying, well, I was I was I was down in the dirt. I was with I was I was recording the animals i was in the you know it's all revisionist history yes absolutely yeah now he's saying now he's saying he didn't diss the album and, and he was he was totally supportive and regards it as a masterpiece i remember reading an interview with him just about the time of the 50th anniversary and i think you know the question or the line of questioning was going along uh, well you know it's amazing that you did get together again with brian and with Al and with David because, you know, for years you were sort of hanging shit on, on Brian. He said, no, 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 no. I love Brian. If he were here today, you know, <laughs> I mean, we, we're cousins first. And I think I've just been given a bum rap just because, damn it, I like a commercial song and yeah. co- Columnated Ruins Domino. What the hell is that all about? But, you know, I love Brian. I love Brian. So, yeah, you're right. Very revisionist. I think he sued Brian, too, even though it, just because there was a – do I have this right? An image when Brian was doing the publicity for Smile? Yes, yes, I read the it's same a thing. Tiny yes. image of Mike Love that was only visible on the British on some kind of special insert on a British release, and he sued him for for using his likeness without his permission. I read the same. It's been like yes. four or five times that he sued him, wow. and that one was dismissed. But luckily, uh, happily, that one was dismissed. Well, for, I'm hoping that the judge was a Beach Boys fan, <laughs> and hopefully, he'll dismiss the lawsuit. But it's surely to come from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll claim fair use, so uh, so that's all. Yeah, it's all good. But I, I think too, just a, a point about you know that 1960, the late 60s, and them trying to get or Mike wanting to try to get another hit. It was, that was a tough time in the U.S. I mean, that was the time of protest songs and a light-hearted surfing song. Maybe he thought it would sell, but it really wouldn't have. That's when you start to have. You know, you've got the 67, you know, the Democratic Convention and the riots and right. all of that stuff. Sure, yeah. You, you know, so it was not a time of light anything. Well, there's a, there's a line in the movie where the where the, the Wilson character, well, well Brian says, uh, it would, you know, I don't, with surf music, we were not even surfers and surfers don't, don't even dig our music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right, yeah. Just to sort of finish off on that note where you're talking about the environment, about, you know, protests and Pio and... And like, I, I think Mike decided he'd jump on that bandwagon, but still within Beach Boys' frame of reference, uh, there was uh, a song, I think, on the, I can't remember if it's on the Sunflower or Surf's Up album called Student Demonstration Time. And it's basically the, the <laughs> music, they've gone and ripped off the music from There's a Riot in Cell Block Number 9. 
and they've just gone and changed it to stuff about the student demonstrations against against Vietnam War. Uh, Did Mike Love write that one? I think I think Mike Love wrote that one. Yeah, I mean, look, maybe it was Bruce Johnson, he's the, but I'm pretty he's sure it's Mike Love. He's the true unsung genius of the Beach Boys, isn't he, Mike Love? You really, uh, you've got to hand it to him. <laughs> and, and by the way, Jake, the actor Jake Abel does a, a wonderful job. He's uh, fantastic, isn't he? Yeah, he really it's captures the smartness. Uh, watching the uh, the Don Was uh, documentary uh, the day before, I watched Love and Mercy, and in, in Love and Mercy they recreate that little black and white film they made where mm-hmm. they're uh, right. you know they're messing around in the swimming pool and they're all coming out of the door and shaking Brian's hand. The uh, and it was, drum yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was un- uncanny how accurate they managed to uh, to reproduce that and how you know how they all looked. And uh, as you say, Frank, Mike Love in particularly, he was uh, it was frightening how uh, how close he looked to him. So. Very true. All right. Look, it seems like we're all chomping at the bits now to talk about the film, which is really the reason that we're here. So we'll go take a quick break, go wax up our surfboards, and then we'll come back and talk about Love and Mercy, the film, the reason that we're all here. You're listening to See Here with Bernie, Frank, Tish, and my name's Morris. We'll be back shortly. other not-so-obvious ones are people like Paul McCartney, who couldn't be here tonight because he's in a lawsuit with Ringo and, and Yoko. That's what he sent a telegram to, to some uh, high-priced attorney in this room, you know? Now, that's a bummer, because we're talking about harmony, right, in the world. If we can't get it together in America and in England in harmony within our groups... I mean, believe it. You can believe it. The Beach Boys have their own interstices or whatever you call it, squabbles. But that's a bummer when Ms. Ross can't make it, you know? The Beach Boys have continued to do about, we did about 180 performances last year. I'd like to see the mop tops match that. I'd like to see Mick Jagger get out on his stage and do I Get Around versus Jumpin' Jack Flash any day now. I was sitting in a crummy movie with my hands on my chin. Oh, the violence that occurred seemed like we never listening to see here episode 25 morris down this end bernie at another end frank and tish at yet another end and tim is sipping a pina colada somewhere and we're here to talk about love and mercy the film about brian wilson came out in 2015 for some reason i think imdb says it came out in 2014 maybe that when it was made i don't know but um let's give the imdb synopsis shall we in the 1960s beach boys leader brian wilson struggles with emerging psychosis as he attempts to craft his avant-garde pop masterpiece doesn't say what it is in the 1980s he is a broken confused man under the 24-hour watch of shady therapist dr eugene landy 
All right. So, who wants to be the first to talk about their initial thoughts about the film? Uh, Tish, I know you're you're dying to do it, so um, go for it, Tish. Your, I, I, your initial thoughts about the film. I loved this movie on so many levels because it, it was more than just a biopic. And biopics tend to get all schmaltzy, and this one didn't get schmaltzy. It was really, at, at times, tough to watch. And the one thing that I've been thinking about in this whole week has been the mental illness angle of it. And, right. um, you know, how, as Brian is becoming, that scene of young Brian having that fit in the airplane, oh my God, my heart broke. It was just, oh, it hurt. It really hurt because I'm watching the, what's going on and knowing they didn't know all that much, even when Gene Landy first starts treating him and treating being a very, you know, specious term. They just didn't, they didn't know what it was that he had. They didn't know how to treat him. And thinking about it, you know, how he reached out to Melinda in that gentle and small, beautiful way. To, he knew things weren't right and he reached out to the person who who he felt something from and I was reading something in Rolling um, Rolling Stone that reviewed uh, Love and Mercy it was an interview with Brian um, when it came out and he talks about wanting people to feel and it well, he at that point in, he's going by feeling and everything with John, the scenes with John Cusack are all about feeling who can really feel what he needs because he can't communicate mm -hmm. and for somebody to be so who could communicate so beautifully with music and how it just has to go into hoping that somebody will feel and understand him it broke my heart i thought it was absolutely wonderful i thought elizabeth banks was fabulous people have said to her oh she's just playing herself and it's like no this character melinda is a very down-to-earth woman she's not a flighty little girl she's a grown-up mm -hmm. And she's not going to throw herself at him, and it's not going to be giggling, and it's not going to be what people think. She was playing a real person who's still alive, and she came across to me very genuine and as a very strong person who Melinda really is. Is this guy a friend of yours? I feel like he's watching us. No, he's not my friend. He's my bodyguard. Come on. Something like that. It's a funny word, isn't it? Bodyguard? Bodyguard. Are we in candid camera? No. No, no, no. I, I, I do need a car. Can we just sit in here for a minute? Sure. very strong individual so mm. frank your initial thoughts well I, I as i said on the podcast when i first talked about it it was kind of one of those magical i, I talked you know you know how sometimes you fall in love with a movie and it's not just the movie it's the experience of seeing the movie yes mm -hmm. who you're with or the kind of theater or just it was in the i saw it by myself in a little theater here on long island sag sag harbor movie theater which is one of the these little preserved old movie theaters single theaters that probably goes back to the to the 20s or the 30s I think there was. I think it was Silent Film House. Wow! And uh, so just just that that alone, the the atmosphere 
I, I just really colored my experience. But the film, I just to me, it worked on so many levels because it's part a little bit. Of, you get the music documentary. You know, you get to see the the, the the magic. You get to see a little bit of his process, a little bit of the of, of how he he manufactured this stuff or where it came from. Mm-hmm. A little bit. You've also got. It's also a suspense film because how is Melinda mm. get going to get him out of this situation? Mm-hmm. It's a love story. There's so many things going for it. Right, and I hadn't heard that much about it, so it was a, a just was uh, was you know wandered into the theater, fell in love with this little old theater, which was preserved by Roy Scheider, by the way, while he was living in, oh, wow. in Sag Harbor. Cool. It was it was, uh, it was destined for the wrecking the side story. It was destined for the wrecking ball, and Roy Scheider uh, basically uh, took took it on as a personal project, a personal mission. But so so there were so many things that went into the the me having a special experience of this movie, and. Um, you could just feel the Bill Pollard, who, who it was a labor of love for him yeah. to have made it. I think it just comes off the screen, you know, that there's, it's a real Valentine to this guy, um, mm-hmm. and, and it just it uh, it got under my skin immediately. And I thought the performances were great. And mm-hmm. Dano, you know, Dano's wonderful, and he looks the part. And Cusack had the harder job to to portray the Brian Wilson that we see and know today. But also, I think it's harder for a famous person to play another famous person. Mm. Mm. Because you really have to suspend disbelief to believe that that's Brian Wilson and not John Cusack. And I agree with Fish. I thought Elizabeth Banks was wonderful. I thought the performances were great. I thought the script, it wasn't a cheesy biopic. Gilbert and I talk about bad biopics so often. <laughs> I, I thought, oh, this is. Oh, there's this so is, many. There's so many. There's so many. I thought, oh, this is going to be some cheeseball biopic. I'm going to be so upset. And it was so lovingly uh, handled and so. Um, so well written. Every performance was true, um, and and then just the music, you know. Mm. I, I, I it was one of these films that I just had a magical experience watching. It's hard, kind of hard to put my finger on just one thing. Mm. Sorry, Bernie, your initial thoughts? I, I approach this with a little um, a little bit of trepidation because, as Frank was just saying, it, there's so many bad biopics out there. They're a, a difficult proposition, and I think they're difficult to do well. There's so many pitfalls. There's so many areas you can um, kind of you know go over the cliff. But like Bobby Darren movie, yeah, <laughs> yes. That's the, that was the Kevin Spacey one, yeah? Yeah. I mean, so, uh, yeah. not to interrupt you, but there are so many examples of that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, approaching this, and again, because it's Brian Wilson and because, uh, you know, the, of the music he created and what he means to so many people, if they'd have gotten it wrong, it would have been painful to watch, um, you know, genuinely painful. But I, I think they pulled it off. I mean, I have to agree with, with Frank Antish. I think everybody in it was, was fantastic. Um I think Paul Giamatti was frighteningly good as uh, Dr. Eugene Landy. And again, you know, going back to the, the idea of a biopic, it's it's always worrying whether everybody in the story is getting a fair shake and how accurate the depiction is of people. But when the film is sympathetic and thoughtfully made, like Love and Mercy is, it's not that that doesn't matter, but it's you get drawn into the film in such a way that you know, the film is its own entity. So um, I don't know if I'm making any sense here, but... Um, no, completely. That's, yeah. So, uh, no, I, I, I was I was worried I wouldn't like it, but um, I liked it a great deal. So, so look, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, Bernie. I came to this full of trepidation because, as I think I've gone and said on the podcast a few times before, I have problem with a lot of biopics, although I think that probably one of the best biopics that I'd seen 
was a British one, and I think, well, maybe the Brits get it right, and that was uh, about Ian Curtis. Of course we do. In, in control. Of course you yeah. do. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And the other one, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, it's it's a British story, but I don't remember if it's a British or an American production. The other biopic I really, really love and keep coming back to is Backbeat about the Beatles' Hamburg days. And okay. I, yeah. I think for me, what I like to see in a biopic is not a start to end story, you know, here's 40, 50 years in the person's life, because that just... To me, that will never work. It's more like, here's a checklist of some important events in this person's life, but you don't really go from work out what made person go from A to B to C to D. It's just like, here's a checklist. They did this, they did this, and the big films in recent years that have committed the crimes amongst people who don't like biopics would be Ray and Walk the Line because they seem to be cookie-cutter films about a brilliant performer, a troubled man, and the love of a good woman saves him. And in a way, Love and Mercy, the second part of it is that story, but it's not covered in, it's not covered over a long period of time. It, 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 it's far more focused than those films are. And well, the, the other thing is that it concentrates on two separate stories. It's not going to give you Brian's full story. It's not going to try and sort of tell you, you know, what happened before. I mean, the, we get like a, a two minute sort of thing at the beginning over the opening credits it says, right, well, here's about the Beach Boys ascent over the opening credits, giving you the, the California of the time. But pretty much it's otherwise the two stories, the Brian around Pet Sounds and the Brian around meeting Melinda Ledbetter. And I think because they yeah. force themselves to concentrate on a smaller period of time that, and they can give that time more attention, that's for me what makes it work. Well, the other thing you don't you don't have a, a Mother Maybell type character either, um, you know, in in Love and Mercy. You're we're really dealing with the maturity, the way that they deal with these are grown up people in a grown up situation, right. you know. So there's not all there yeah. is no golly gosh jeepers, Jesus is just going to save everybody, you know. This is when the scene when. Giamatti's Landy going off on Melinda in the car dealership. Dr. Eugene Landy? Yes, what? You've been served. <laughs> oh, you bitch. Um, do you think that you've won, Melinda? Hmm? You know what? I'm going to beat this, and I'm going to beat you! Oh my God, you know, this kind of behavior is so transparent. It is so sick and manipulative. Do you really think that you are so different? Oh my God, you slut! Slut! I was yeah, holding yeah. my breath because yeah, I'm like, oh shit, how is she going to handle this? Oh my God, this is horrible. And that feeling of, you know, I was, I've had that happen to me. So I'm like, my heart's going a mile a minute because I know what she's going yeah. through. And it was just... I was going to say, I think like you said earlier, Tish, it's, they're not scared to go to the dark places in this. And they really do go there. And they really do imbue yeah. that with, you know, just a sense of horror or whatever that, you know, uh, Brian was going through or what, um, uh, you know, that's that scene you just described. And it's... They... They don't just put little elements like that in there to show that, yeah, he went through a bad patch here, but then this happened and it was okay. They really actually go into it and they investigate it and they 
they kind of make you feel it, you know, which which works yeah. really well. It's not just Johnny Cash in his in taking too many pills and lying in a cave like he did in Walk the Line, and then you know he's fine after that. It's I don't know. It it just feels sympathetically handled and genuine, and like you say, mature. It feels grown up. So let me ask you: to that end, as a film, do you think that the approach of interweaving the two stories rather than telling them chronologically as two separate stories was a good idea? Or do you think, well, I think a moot I point? think it's one of the things the film has going for it that's, that manages to separate it from those other biopics you're talking about. Mm-hmm. From, from a yeah. storytelling perspective, with, with some of those biopics, I, mean, you're ta- I, I was thinking of Chaplin as a number of, going back a number of years when you were talking about biopics that fail where, where they take a greatest hits approach. Mm-hmm. Where one of one of the saving graces, I think, of this movie from a narrative standpoint or from an entertainment standpoint is you're going back. You're not you're not sitting there chronologically watching this person go through the paces of their lives because you've got parallel stories. You've got two things to keep you occupied with with the, with the separate sets of villains. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, so there's there's all these stories going on, and as I said, it's also a before it's also a suspense film. Here's a is a person in trouble. You know how how is she going to to solve this? To solve this riddle, all of these obstacles, and it looks uh, it, it, the point where she walks away. It looks like an impossible task. So there's so many movies there. There's so many different stories going on, and it's working on so many levels. I can understand Absolutely. why Paul, the writer, knew they've got more than a biopic here. Yep. Mm. Um, He's able to juggle those d- different themes, those different stories, and still have it all be entirely satisfying. It's a testament to him as a director, you know. I think it I works think so. impressive, Sorry. yeah. I was going to say some smart editing as well. Some of the biopics, you can catch where there is there's a, a bad segue or something that doesn't isn't the continuity goes off, and they were very, very clear in keeping the, the visual continuity. Yeah. As well, yes, as well as the editing, keeping it very tight, making sure the transitions were very smooth so that it wasn't all choppy feeling, Mm. which can happen as well. I was going to say, I think that really um, helps the pace of the film as well, the way that you've got the two story Mm. strands and the way not where one part begins to lull, but certainly it will then jump back and build to something that's about to happen, and then it will jump forward again. And, you know, you're constantly on the edge of your seat almost, uh, you know, seeing this through. So I think that works really well. It's also, that's like the rare, it's the rare biopic that has a rescue story in the center of it. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. There's, there's also the familiar and the unfamiliar. You know, we're familiar with aspects of this story, Sure. Um, but underneath all of that familiar is a lot of unfamiliar mm. that we begin to see. And one of the things that I saw was, thought was really cool that I read about it with Paul Dano, he viewed all of the stuff from the, um, the Pet Sound sessions that everybody had already seen, but there were things that he viewed that nobody else has ever seen. You know it's gonna make it that much better when we can say goodnight and stay together. Happy times together we've been spending I wish that every kiss was ever ending That added a little more to it. We saw not only more of Wilson's process, but we also saw all of that dark stuff that is usually glossed over in other movies, as we were just saying. 
And because it could have been cookie, they could have taken it, you know, strictly from all of the press clippings through the years and cobbled something together. But they got underneath the press clippings. Exactly. Other yeah, bio, yeah. yeah. Other biopics are just like, oh, I could have read this, you know, in Rolling Stone, you know, in four issues. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I think yeah. I think that one of the things that really, really works. Uh, in, in getting into those dark spaces is never being too overstated about things. You know, they, there's a sense of subtlety and even when they use devices which have been used in other films before, and I'll mention one here, it's not, it, they never go too over the top. So for instance, there's the scene where Brian is like, is during the, uh, Paul, one of Paul Dano phases and they've been in the studio recording pet sounds and he's lying out on, on his car and he's looking at the night sky, just sort of thinking about all that he's done. And we hear the voices in his head. We hear, but he, but he's in a happy space because the, the wrecking crew are the family that he's happy with because he can communicate his musical ideas. Music is what gives him life. Music is what makes him happy. So he hears harmonies in his head. He's probably imagining what he's going to teach the rest of the guys when they come back from their uh, their tour, the, the rest of the Beach Boys. And so he hears these beautiful uh, harmonies in his head before he goes into that lovely conversation with Hal Blaine. And, and Hal says, you know, we guys think, you know, the Wrecking Crew think you're a genius. Brian, you just keep doing what you're doing. Let me tell you something. We're all pros, you know. We've played with everyone. Heard it all. You name them, we've played with them. Sinatra, Dean Martin, Elvis, Phil Spector, Sam Cooke, everyone. And we all studied in goddamn conservatories, for Christ's sake. But, but you, you, you gotta know that you're a touched kid. and blown our minds. More than Phil Spector? Ah, Phil's got nothing on you. <laughs> The band's gonna love it. Every note. But then there are other moments in the film, not too overstated, where he hears other things in his head when he feels stress or when he's being bullied. So there's that sense like the celebration of good vibrations getting to the top of the charts, and he's at a dinner party and everyone's just, you know, uh, as Tim would have said, blowing smoke up his ass. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he hears nothing but the clinking of cutlery and you know, before it drives him absolutely mad. And that is such an effective scene. Um, as somebody who's had a few issues with anxiety in the past, Yes, that captures that kind of feeling so incredibly well. That is so beautifully done. And in fact, the, the sound design in, in that scene and the scene you were talking about just now, Morris, uh, breathtakingly good, I think. Mm. It, it, it actually made me think of um, the, the film that we discussed with you uh, a few months ago, Frank, All That Jazz. Remember that <laughs> that scene with Roy Scheider in the meeting and everyone's everyone's gabbling on and he just wants to get on with doing things and he hears silence. I was wondering whether yeah. Love and Mercy was going to have a, a point where Brian hears absolutely nothing, but the, the noises in his, in his head uh, are what actually disturb him. So. I think one of the other things that makes the film work is it doesn't, and I don't know that much about the production, but it, it feels for all the world like an, an independent film or and, and then a film that found... Uh, uh, that found a major distributor, it, it, and it may not have been, but it, but it certainly has the spirit of an independent film. And you look at something like Walk the Line or Ray, and they're studio films. 
Absolutely, yeah. They're a yeah. different animal, you know. They're and and so uh, I, I, you know, this this there was a lot of this was shot documentary style. I think that I think right. good decisions were made like that all the way to to avoid the the the, the kind of the hoary biopic. Right. Mm. No, I think I, as well when when you have uh, John Cusack and Paul Giamatti as, as the two name actors in the film that you know they're not uh, the Hollywood superstar big box office jewels are they so it's yeah yeah but Cusack has enough drawing power I mean I think he was like an executive producer on the film so he probably used his clout in you know getting well, he's, certain parts he's, of the film uh, the way he wanted. Like Paul Giamatti, they're, they're actors. They're not stars. Yeah. They're actors. Not movie stars. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I think that's yeah. important. Yeah. I think that's important too because I think that they probably yeah. they probably showed up and read the lines as opposed to meddling with the process or having uh, yeah. you know having their hands all over it. And when when he received the original script, the two people are credited for writing the script. When Polad got the original script. He turned to another writer named Orrin Moverman, who had written that the very strange uh, Dylan biopic, which I've not mm-hmm. seen. To this I'm point. not I'm, there. I'm a, bit, I'm a bit frightened to watch that. Is it? Did you right. enjoy it, Frank? Yeah, yes and no. Yes and no. I admi- I admired its its daring. Mm-hmm. But but I I think the right choices were made here by Paul, and I think this was only the second film he directed, if I'm not mistaken. He's a producer. He produced uh, uh, Twelve Years a Slave and 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 Malik's wow. Treat Life. And some other films, but I think this was his second directorial effort, and I think that approaching it documentary style or or indie style, not using movie stars, because this thing was developed a couple of times. There was supposedly, at least according to what I've read, an adaptation of uh, at least a he wasn't involved, but there was supposedly a, a Wilson biopic in the works as far back as '88 to star William Hurt and Richard Dreyfuss as Landy. Can you imagine? Oh, oh God. yikes. Oh, <laughs> right wow. Landy would have been the hero piece as oh, well, wouldn't he? Oh, that's painful. Think about it. There was another one developed with Jeff Bridges in the in the 90s, which may or may not have been successful. But I think you, you, you've got an independent film approach. You've got actors who aren't movie stars. I think everything, all the right decisions were made, and it shows. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Each time things start to happen again, I think I got something good going for myself. But what goes wrong? Sometimes I feel very sad. Sometimes I feel very sad. Sometimes I feel very sad. Talking a bit before about uh, the whole issue of mental illness, and, uh, and there's two themes, obviously other than the music, but two other themes that sort of run through this film. There's mental illness and the bullying, which sort of like leads to the mental illness. And I, it sort of brought yep. to mind two other films, one which I don't think worked anywhere near as well as that. And that uh, the first one is um, the Australian film Shine, about uh, the Australian pianist David Helfgott, who also had an overbearing father who wanted to control his son's life. And David Helfgott, he, he, I think, he, what, trying to work on Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto at, uh, while at university in England, he just collapsed, you know, but it was probably as a result of all the pressure that 
his uh, his father had uh, placed on him for all those years and all, all the beatings and emotional manipulation. Uh, that film didn't quite work, and that was certainly done as a start-to-finish sort of thing rather than going back and forth between the two actors who played Helfgott. But, I mean, it was an interesting idea. It was approached like a European film, but I, I don't think it was thought all the way through, but I think I'm in the minority because the film is hugely successful. But the other film about bullying, and this... I guess it's not so much about uh, mental health, but but an attempt to manipulate someone. And that's uh, another recent film, Whiplash, where uh, J.K. Simmons is is acting as a substitute father figure to Miles Teller and uses violence as well as emotional guilt because, you know, he either thought that it was the best way to get excellence from his young charge or he recognised his skills early off the bat and, um, you know, he wanted to placate his own ego by putting him in his place and showing him, showing uh, the, the Miles Teller character, who's the boss. And I tend to sort of think that Murray Wilson, who we haven't sort of spoken about yet, you know, the, the character of Murray in this film, he, you know, he keeps saying, uh, like there's that scene in the film where he says um, about God only knows, he says, oh, it's a suicide note, it's not a love song. No, nah, it's rubbish, it's rubbish. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I closed my eyes, didn't see a thing. I don't know. Maybe it could be something with the right arrangement. Well, yeah, I have French horns on it and flutes, tambourines, sleigh bells, piano, bass, real complex key shifts. Frankly, if you really want to know, I don't care for it. It's too wishy-washy. If you leave me, why leave me? Life will go on, why go on living? It's not like a Beach Boys song. Your brothers are going to hate it. It's a love song. It's a suicide note. Didn't you just say it could be something with the right arrangement? Well, I gave it another thought, okay? And if you can't keep your voice down in my house, get out! But I'm guessing that on the inside he thought, he's better than I ever was, but I'd better put him back in his place so he knows, you know, I'm a songwriter, you're just my son i'm just mm. you're just a, another yeah. you're just a kid you're just my charge you know you're just my business interest well that whole the whole idea or the whole of stories of really horrible fathers historically beethoven's father um beethoven's father wanted beethoven to be mozart so he, he thank, used to wake him goodness, up that didn't happen yeah this, so he used to drag him out of bed in the middle of the night and make him make him practice and beat him up and all other kinds of stuff he was really and beethoven being another guy who lost his hearing later on and then composed one of his greatest symphonies it's one of those it's one of those themes that happens both in reality and in fiction and i think it is because the father sees in the son his own talent and wants his, his son to achieve what, what yeah. he doesn't have yeah yeah yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's that push pull. There's that I'm going to nurture you, but don't go any further than me because, you know, I want you to, but I don't want you to, you know, that conflict. Yeah. So, and then it drives the poor genius guys nuts. So, because poor Beethoven had his problems too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, once again, we've been talking about the actors and the generally incredible standard of. Of uh, performance and yeah, Paul Giamatti. I think. I mean, look, really, he could he could walk through this with his eyes shut in a way because he's he always. Uh, and I, I mean, I mean this in a good way. I mean this in a good way. He seems to have developed a nice line in playing someone who's who's on edge. And what he does, <laughs> what he does, what he does here, he has this here. Uh, I, I think was it you, Tish, that said that there's 
or Frank that said uh, there's a suspense element to this film and it's really in watching Paul Giamatti work. Even if you didn't know who Eugene Landy was when you walked into this film and you saw, all right, it's a film about the Beach Boys. We see Giamatti maintain some level of control. You see him like he's a control freak, but he, as long as things are going his way, then, you know, he's calm. But then there's that scene, which I think both Cusack and Giamatti handle brilliantly, and it's at the, the lunch, the barbecue... Yeah. And Giamatti's yeah. making the hamburgers. Hey, Gene. Yeah. Exactly what allergies does he suffer from anyway? Don't you worry about that. Brian's uh, medications are very carefully administered, if you must know. No, what? No, God damn it. Jesus Christ. Seriously? Seriously? You have got to learn to wait your goddamn turn. Jesus Christ. Now, this is what happens, okay? No, you are not goddamn hungry. You think you're hungry. Do you understand the goddamn difference? Wait your turn. You have got to be kidding me. Yeah, that's one of those scenes I think Tish was talking about as being difficult to watch. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, just how, how he explodes, there's that menace, that bubble under the surface, and then all of a sudden, Brian, you're, you're going to wait when I tell you to. Jesus Christ. And, yeah, that, that certainly made me jump out of my chair. But then <laughs> there's the, the two bits. There's also that, that bit later on, and you know, spoiler alert if you haven't watched it, where he served a writ to keep away from Brian, and, and he uh, says the most horrible, nasty things to Melinda from behind a closed door, and she's sort of hiding in fright. It's, it's actually interesting. I listened to a um, podcast during the week. I forgot what the name was, but there was an interview with... Uh, Paul Dano, Bill Pollard, and with Elizabeth Banks. And apparently in real life, uh, Melinda didn't open the door to uh, to challenge him. Uh, and really, who could blame her? But mm-hmm. I think it was about, I think it was a it was a good move in the film where because like she's I like how she's presented. She's a character. I mean, she's not a hero in the traditional sense of I'm going to shout you down, I'm going to yell down, I'm going to rescue my man or anything like that. Everything she does is quiet and she's just, she's frightened, but she knows that she's going to overcome. She's her. brave. She's very brave. Brave, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, hero's wrong mm-hmm. word. Brave is a brilliant mm-hmm. word. And that moment, it comes back to the thing of subtlety. Everything in this film, it's not so subtle that you're scratching your head later and thinking, hang on, what actually happened here? But it's subtle in the sense that it's not going way over the top. And I just love what she did there. I think that was a, it was a good move of, you know, we know that in all these biopics, they do things for, uh, dramatic purposes, you know, just as, yeah. well, we want to emphasize this thing, but I think here it was done for the better. You see him, you know, his power is, is that moment where, you know, the tide turns where she wins effectively because um, you just see it crumble in him, don't you? You just see that power. Right. Uh, you, you can, you know, you can tell that he's beaten. He knows he's beaten at that point. Yeah, I think it needed to be there for, for effect because in real life, yes. it might have been a slower process. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. Now, 
we've been we've also been itching to discuss. We sort of brought up briefly in the first part of the program, uh, and we've been speaking a little bit about here about the uh, really what I guess is the emotional also core of the film for us: the recording of pet sounds. Now, so many biopics, the music seems to be just sort of like an adjunct. It's something that the person under focus for the film oh yeah they just happen to do so, uh, music so we're going to show them in concert and, and just sort of get over the fact that yeah okay they're a musician so we better show a little bit of music but this was one of the few films I can think of maybe the only film I can think of where the actual creative process is really shown it's not something yeah. that it's not something that the writer or director would thought would be a, a time waster for the audience it treats their audience with intelligence it presumes yeah. that you're a Brian Wilson fan so you want to see what made recording pet sounds so special or maybe you don't know anything about that sort of thing so let's show you what made him a genius what made him do the, the way how, how he did things and I think that is handled so brilliantly we get him interacting with the wrecking crew we get Carol Kay the woman I can't remember the name of the actress who played Carol Kay but she's asking him at one point now you've got me on the on the electric bass playing this line but you've got the double bassist playing this other this other note and that sort of melodic or oh, oh, harmony wise that doesn't quite work and he said yeah oh I hadn't thought about that let's just give it a try anyway and mm. it he says it works in my head doesn't he always says it's saying yes. it's good to yeah. me yeah yeah. That's right. yeah 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 Teresa Coles is her name since you brought it up oh thank you a, 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 a real musician. I think they're they're all real musicians. The the yeah. people who who are playing mm-hmm. the Wrecking Crew. I only know that because I've got the media page open here. Okay. Do you know what, what does it say? What else has she done? Has she done anything film wise, or is it just uh, uh, her? Well, so I'd, I'd have to dig around because uh, her link is not active in Wikipedia. Ah, okay. So pro- probably but, uh, uh, a, a musician. Yeah, yeah it's great. It's great that they actually hired actors who were musicians to play those parts. So. That's again. It's kind of indicative of the amount of thought and uh, the process of going into the filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. So you know, when you've got someone who can play an instrument pretending to play an instrument, it's very, very apparent. So um, mm. it, it was interesting. I uh, read an interview with uh, Darian Sahanaja, who is Brian Wilson's musical director and also the main songwriter for the fabulous group Wonderments. He had gone and said that he got. Paul Dano, Paul Dano, who was who sung, but he'd never played an instrument in his life. He coached him to play simple things on the piano, which was basically in keeping with Brian's style of piano playing, so it would look authentic. And it said that because Paul had an affinity for music and he was a singer already anyway, so uh, he said he really took to that very well. And it does look authentic, you know, the moments he's as he comes out of the tent and into the sandbox. He's looking very authentic, yeah, yeah. And, and when he's yeah. when he's telling the members of the Wrecking Crew, try this or uh, play this play this bit on the ch- uh, on the cello staccato. Everything that he does as Brian is one hundred percent completely believable. You believe that he's Brian Wilson. You believe that this is a guy who's a musician and that he knows what he's saying. He knows what he's doing. Yeah, he's not yeah, just definitely. acting the words. Yeah. Which is really cool. Some, it- something very telling here on the Wikipedia page, which I which I suspected. Love and Mercy is the second feature directed by Polad, diff- decades from his previous film, and was financed with his own money. There you oh, go. Wow. Uh, so 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 there no studio interference. I think is a big uh, is a big saving grace here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but of course the thing was this film was done with the cooperation of Brian and Melinda. Yeah, so they, they were definitely not going to do anything that would insult them. And yet, at the same time, they didn't shy away from 
the dark bits and the hard bits. It was, it is reverential to a degree, but it's not making, it's not all, well, you couldn't tell the story with sweetness and light. It needed to get their approval, but at the same time, it's not kissing ass either. It's pretty much a warts and yeah. it gives the warts, but it also, I think the fact that it goes into so much depth about what made the music special is what probably got Brian to give it his approval and from all from um, reports from this podcast I'll listen to either Bill Pollard or, or uh, Paul Dano said that uh, Brian came backstage after the uh, the first screening of the movie and said wow that was a really good film <laughs> and that's that's maybe a knock on some of those other music biopics Morris is that you know and I'm trying to remember Ray thinking about the Buddy Holly story and and, and walk the line for my money, maybe it's just me. You don't you don't see enough of what makes these people musical geniuses, and maybe that's hard to dramatize on film. Exactly. Less easy to less easy to dramatize, perhaps than uh, than Ray Charles' uh, uh, you know uh, turbulent love life. And yet, Taylor. Yeah, I Hack- think you might have a point. Yeah. And Taylor Hackford, who made that film, you know, is a music guy, and and so it's it's strange. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's a hard thing. I guess with Brian Wilson, you you know, there's there's so much there to show. Uh, but but to me, that's uh, that's one of the things that that separates this. Yeah. Right. I was gonna say that's what when you brought up control earlier, Morris. There's there's a similarity between love and mercy and control, and that is showing the vulnerability of this musician and in things that I was listening to some interviews that where Melinda was part of the interview she doesn't shy away from any of this in their day-to-day life so for her I think you know showing that darkness was an important thing and the same thing in control where you see with with Ian Curtis's illness and the effects of the drugs on him you know these are hard things to show and Hollywood doesn't like to destroy myths you know yeah it takes it mythologizes it enshrines these people in a certain way and because it wants to cater to a dream of these people whereas these other films they want you to empathize and understand that these people even though they were great geniuses were people too Mm -hmm. which is very important i think i've seen a trailer i think in the last couple of weeks for a biopic that's coming out very soon, and I'm very, very worried. The film is called I Saw the Light, and it's going to be a biopic about Hank Williams. And I think this oh, is... Oh, no. I'm, I, look, I, I want to reserve judgment, but going by how the trailer is presented, I think it's going to be another film in the line of Ray and Walk the Line. It's going to be a little bit cookie cutter, but except, you know, unlike those films, it's not going to have a happy ending. So who's, it'll be um, who's playing Hank Williams? Oh, so is it Charlie Tom Huddleston? I think you're right. I think it is. There you go. So who, yeah, I, I missed that. Who, who was it? Tom Tom Hiddleston from the Avengers. Right. Yes. Yes. I think so. Yeah, yes. I think you're right. Yeah. So it has a fighting chance. Well, George Hamilton played him in a 1960s biopic. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Hank Williams with a tan. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it and very healthy looking, and it's very just <laughs> not good in a lot of ways. <laughs> If you ever get to see it, I don't know the name of it. You can look it up under George Hamilton's IMDb, and I think you can probably find it online, but it will make you go, I'm just looking at this uh, I Saw the Light. It's actually got quite a good cast, but... um, As I said, I'll reserve reserve judgment, 
Sure, absolutely. Yeah, you have to. But, but yeah. if you if you watch the trailer, it's uh, it's presented in that sensationalistic sort of sort of light. You know, there's uh, you know it starts off with you know the, with the music and then with a lot of yelling at each other and a lot of crying and tears and that sort of thing as the music builds up as they do in trailers nowadays. And I just thought. If that's the if that's what you're using to try and bring me into the cinema, you're not doing a great job. But it's by virtue of the fact that it's a musician who I admire that means well, I'll probably have to see it anyway. But I mean, look, you know, sorry, in, I'm um, I'm looking on IMDb here. Uh, sorry to derail us a little bit, but uh, there's one user review for it, yep. and it gets two stars out of ten. Uh oh. Says uh, I saw this movie last fall, just a few weeks prior to the original release dates. Uh, and then it says there was a reason this film was pulled from release. Um, he said, uh, uh, yeah, terrible, apparently. Uh-oh. So, uh, yeah. There you go. That's never a good sign, is it, when it's pulled from its release date? So, There you go. So prob- probably not a film we'll be discussing on C here, I think, at any stage soon. Probably not, no. No. So any sort of other directions, any other thought about how uh, how this film panned out? I just wanted to sort of state again how good, particularly um, John Cusack and uh, Paul Dano were. Certainly, as we were saying earlier, it was a really tough job for John Cusack, and I think he really, really pulled it off well. It's good that you bring up Cusack, because remember, I was speaking a few moments ago about the, the whole barbecue scene and Paul Giamatti's aggression taking over, but it, what I forgot to mention there was... John Cusack, there was probably one of his finest moments, I think, in the film, how he cowered in front of him. And you see, yeah. like, that's Brian mm-hmm. as a shell. We see, you know, when, yeah. when we see early Paul Dano Brian around the music and he's feeling confident. And even when he's around his furry, uh, furry, around his father, Murray, you know, he feels disappointed more than anything. But by the time he's with Landy and Landy's giving him all these drugs that are for, you know, not even for a properly diagnosed condition, yeah. as it's discovered later on, uh, he's just, he's a complete shell of a man. And, and, you know, really, Melinda is his lifesaver here. But just that bit where yeah. he's yelling at him and he just cowers, I thought that was a, an incredible piece of acting on behalf of uh, John only, Cusack. I can only imagine what sort of hell Brian Wilson must have been going through to be, you know, manipulated, drugged up to his eyeballs. And, yeah, it would have just been absolutely terrible. And, you know, give Cusack his due. I think he really did a good job uh, portraying that, but without going over the top and being, you know, giving a super showy Nick Cage-style performance or whatever, you know. <laughs> it would have been it's an interesting yeah, film. Exactly. It's an artistic film, too. And not only does it not insult your intelligence, not only is it one of these kind of Hollywood greatest hits biopics, but the scene in the, the scenes in the third act where he's the little boy, where he's lying in bed, yeah, and you, you, mm-hmm. you see, and he just keeps changing in age, and, he, and you, you see the flashbacks and the flash forwards. Did, did you read any of the articles that had said that uh, this film has a 2001 moment? And only when I well, really watched was... it this week, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. that's it. Bit. Yeah, and even the heartbreaking again, moment at the end, where he tries to bring her to his childhood home, and it's gone, and there's a freeway. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, and, you know. There's 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 uh, there's emotion and to spare in, in, in this thing. It's it's uh it, it's not just hey Brian Wilson's a genius and then here's the love story. It it it, it takes its time getting where it's going, but there's a lot of nuance. It's very very smart. Definitely, yeah. And clearly yeah. made by somebody who and, and clearly uh, clearly a labor of love. Not only because he put his own money into it. Yes. Uh, 
Uh, side note of trivia, uh, by the way, his father, Carl Polad, was the uh, was one time owner of the Minnesota Twins baseball team. Oh, interesting! <laughs> a little fun trivia. No, I was just I was just going to say it's clearly the work of somebody who who loved Brian Wilson, who loved his subject. You know, it's it's a it's a it's a real Valentine. But it, it's you don't always get that. It, it's, a danger, it's a dangerous thing to be in love with the subject matter. And you're right; it, it's it's very clear that it is. It's one thing to be in love with the subject matter, but without sort of shying away from the hard bits. And, and well, he's, even, he's even in love when, with the subject matter to the extent that he does the job properly. He doesn't right. gloss over things. He doesn't make it overly schmaltzy, and he doesn't, you know, go the other way. He does a perfect job on it because it obviously means a lot to him. And yeah, and I, yeah. I think as well, we, we were discussing a lot in the first half about Mike Love. I think even. Now that I'm thinking about it, Mike Love doesn't come off too badly in the film. I mean, look, he is saying, Brian, we don't, why are we doing this stuff? Let's just get back to doing what we do. But even there, it's, I mean, really, if in the hands of a lesser director, he could yeah. have made a real prick. That, oh, you, yeah. you horrible piece of shit. It, it's more it, it, it's more just like a oh, come on. We're, we're looking at this from the perspective of seeing we know where Brian ended up we know that he's now held in reverence but we also know that he had a whole lot of hard times ahead of him and plus we also know a lot of things that Mike Love has said in public you know Rock and Roll Hall of Fame speech look that up oh yeah uh, he even gets Mike Love his little moment you know when when Brian's in the sandbox and he's just and he's just compulsively playing that riff that turns into good vibrations right yeah. And love, he has yeah, love wander over. Mike, Mike, love is, yeah. Mike Love is not two-dimensional in the film. And, and really, I mean, in, in, yeah. in, the, in, the, in the case of the film, it, the it's... credit to the writing. It, it's, it completely yeah. is. He, I, I come back to Backbeat for a second, because, I mean, ostensibly that was, as I said, during the Beatles' Hamburg years, but it was more of a story about the friendship between John Lennon and Stuart Sutcliffe. And yeah. the other three Beatles, they're really cardboard characters. You know, Paul McCartney comes off as, you know, this vain guy who, like Mike Love in this film, uh, wants the success of the band above absolutely everything else. And in real life, John Lennon wanted success. But, you know, mm. Paul comes as, you know, this arrogant prince. George, we hear nothing from. And Pete Best, you know, he has this brilliant, and I mean that in a bad way, brilliantly bad line of, uh, well, no one asks me anything because I'm just the fucking drummer. Uh, <laughs> so all cardboard you speak as a drummer, Morris, so that's, that, comes from, uh, that comes from a personal place, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I, I won't allow myself to be treated as just the fucking drummer. Are you a drummer, Morris? I'm a drummer, yes. Oh, that's, well, that's news for me. Well, there you go. New, new bit of trivia for, for that. For that matter, so is Bernie. And well, I and, used to be a long time ago. And, yeah. and, and Wendy, our, our uh, previous uh, compadre in uh, C here, uh, Wendy's a drumming teacher. So um, really, we sh- if we'd thought cleverly about this podcast, we should have called it, you know, uh, three drummers and. I don't know what and Tim. <laughs> Three drummers <laughs> and Tim. <laughs> you know, since you brought up Backbeat, uh, Morris, the, uh, the the Lennon biopic, was it called Nowhere Boy? Yeah, I didn't care for that. <laughs> didn't care for it? No. I, I, I haven't seen it. I was curious if any of you had seen it. Oh, it's it's just it's just to watch if you're if you like watching cute little Aaron Taylor what's his name? He's adorable in it. It's got its moments, but I wouldn't but not say very it's good. good. Okay. No, I just watch it for the eye candy. <laughs> I do like Bound for Glory, 
by the way, as another good biopic. Musical that's, biopic. That's uh, one that's, of the best. That's yeah. on my. I've had that DVD for you know, about three, four years, and it's still my to watch pile. But I, I'm I'm placing notice on you, Bernie. We're gonna we're gonna cover that at some stage. I, yeah. I'm dying to watch that one. Uh, being a, so, uh, which one was tra- that again? The tragic story. David what? David Carradine stars as Woody Guthrie. Yeah. Yeah, oh, he's, he's yeah. absolutely wonderful. He really, really is. And it's, that's another one that's very heartbreaking. But, but back to the stuff with, um, Love and Mercy. Oh, yes. A very <laughs> important, a very important point about that movie is tackling the issue of mental illness, which Hollywood does not yes. like to look at in any depth. Yes. Our society over here in America is having a very, very big problem with our jails and people having our jails are now functioning as sort of half jail, half mental institution. And to, you know, you have to realize in, in seeing how Landy is doing things, like I said earlier, they didn't know what was wrong with Brian. And this is where I see Mike loves shortness with him during pet sounds is it's like, what the freak is wrong with this guy? Well, he just stopped taking drugs and they used to think that it was the drugs that made Brian crazy. No, it was the crazy that made him crazy. (laughs) It's interesting you say that, Tish, because uh, that that scene particularly uh, where they have the meeting in the swimming pool, you know, and it's apparent there is something wrong with Brian. And I was watching that thinking, well, surely you would realize there was something wrong with Brian at this point. Why are you being such an ass and so intolerant of him, you know? But like you say, I guess... They were just thinking it's it's drugs, but right yeah, and and yeah. mental illness, mental illness still in a lot of ways, you know, various kinds, it's still seen as a moral failing, and it isn't. It's a brain chemistry thing. Absolutely, thing. absolutely, yeah. yeah. So yeah, having yeah. my battles with depression, boy, I know it's it's rough. It can be rough. Yeah, I think that's where I resonate with Brian, and I kind of have like a I have like a little special love for him because I see him as like, oh, dude. I feel so bad for you that you had to go through this when nobody knew what this was, you know, and to see him able to function now, it's like, yes, you did it. (laughs) You know, there's that, that feeling of triumph and, and it takes people loving you enough and how much Melinda loved him to see there's got to be a better way in his life, you know? And at that time we think it's not that long ago in, in the, amount of research and, and things and medications that have come along, it's almost like a century. You know, sure, it's, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, I can imagine. So, yeah. And who knows yeah. what would have happened if he'd never wandered into that dealership. Wow. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. I mean, would, right. La- would Landy have ultimately uh, overcome him? statistic. Take, taken yeah. him, yeah. 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 It would have been like another Elvis, you know, that he died right. fat and on drugs somewhere, which is would have been horrible. There's... Uh, so. um, I think there's YouTube footage I saw of Landy and Brian Wilson appearing on some breakfast show, and Landy's got his arm around Brian as if to say, "Oh, it's He's awful, mine. isn't I'm it?" Not... Have you seen that? Have you seen that, Bernie? Uh, yeah, and and um, Brian is just completely out of it, isn't he? He's not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. painful there to watch. Were... It's just it's Landy is the um, the worst kind of person. That that's something I have real issues with when people 
take advantage of and manipulate people and you know landy kind of turned that into an art form and it's just horrible to treat other people like that and there's there's nothing well there are a few things worse i guess but it's it's just a horrible thing to do i think he'd worked with a bunch of other rock stars before uh before brian and in fact he had. The, 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 he, uh, did, did he not man he was uh, a manager for i think he managed george benson or someone like that before he was huh. a psychotherapist apparently Oh god! But uh, yeah, he had treated other um, other rock stars, hadn't he? And actually, I think from what I understand, that the the period that we're seeing in the film was not the first time that he'd treated Brian. I think you know, uh, right, Marilyn, uh, yes. uh, like his first wife, Marilyn, uh, yeah. wanted him, knew that there were issues, and sort of got him to see a therapist, and he stayed around for about a year, and then they sacked him. But I don't I know think how he brought himself with, back. Uh, with money, wasn't there? Because he was charging uh, an exorbitant amount right, of money. Right, And right. I think that's yeah. why they let him go initially. But um, yeah, and they brought him back. Yeah. And then they they let him back with his team, mm. his team of uh, bodyguards and bullies. Ugh. Yeah, yes. horrible people, yeah. horrible, horrible people. All right, look, we've yeah. uh, been discussing this for a while. I'm not sure that the bandwidth's going to hold up. So, um, any final any final thoughts, ladies and gems? Um, uh, we'll start with you, Tish. Any final thoughts about the film? Oh, uh, just that I think it's going to be one of my favorites for a long time. And if people haven't seen it, they really should. Mm. It's a just a fine, fine film. Frank? Well, I agree. And I think we should keep our eye on this director. or Well, he, like I said, he's a producer primarily, but to see if he makes any other films. Mm. And uh, also, oh, slightly off the topic, uh, I just watched, speaking of The Wrecking Crew, I just watched The Wrecking Crew doc. And yes. it's also... Yes, I, I did too during the week. Yep. Yeah, well, wonderful. So you, you'll have to do an episode about that somewhere down the line. I've, I've actually sort of uh, made a note in my book that uh, yeah, we, 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 we are definitely going to do that. Uh, Bernie, I think um, Paul Hughes from the uh, GGTMC group has expressed an interest in uh Oh, really? In Manchester Paul. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So we'll, get him to, we'll get him to say Rafifi as well. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and can I count on all of you guys to uh, to consult on my upcoming Mike Love biopic? Sorry, sorry. Uh, oh, yeah. Yes. Sure. If you're, uh, if you're oh, writing baby. the checks, Frank, I'll say whatever you like. <laughs> Do we need uh, that was just, that was just to mitigate any uh, potential <laughs> any potential legal action that may be taken against this podcast. Uh, come on, Mike, do your worst. Do your worst. I don't care. I've got nothing to give, so you know, fuck. It. Uh, Bernie, final thoughts? I would agree with both uh, Tish and Frank. It's um, I think it's a wonderful film, and. You know, as, as we mentioned several times, it's a really difficult proposition making a biopic, and this does absolutely everything right. Um, so if you haven't seen it, please track it down and watch it. And the Don Was documentary, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's called I Just Wasn't Made for These Times. A little bit hard to track down, but certainly well worth the while if you yeah. can. Mm. It's out there. Yeah. I, re- I remember I saw it at Melbourne Film Festival when it came out, I think about a year after it was officially made or something like that. It was... Uh, and I think there was they, they had to put extra sessions on, so it's was, it was terrific that uh, even back you know 20 years ago, you know when the the cult of Brian was starting up again, that you know lots of people here wanted to see that, and people sort of you know were still in in admiration and 
in huge excitement about you know Brian coming back into the uh, spotlight again. And I, th- I just I guess my final thought, not so much on the film, but it's good to see that uh, you know Melinda's love of him. I mean, it could quite easily have been that well he gets out into the real world again and he's playing his music and you know, the same old problems start up again. You know, the pressure of being on the road and traveling overseas and and the like. But he's got Melinda. And yeah. people around him who yeah. he's got a band who truly loves him. It almost seems like you know yeah. his, his uh, band you know, and the Wonderments are all they're all looking after him. You know, just yes. uh, all yeah. the footage. But it seems it seems that he's got the happy ending that he deserved, doesn't it? I mean, hopefully Correct. he'll be around yeah. for many years yet. But it's it's yeah. great that he's in the position he's in now. I know he so, I know but, he's very sad. He's gone and said as such that he truly regrets it, Carl. And Dennis aren't around. I know yeah. they, they, their death yeah. particularly hit him very, very hard. As he actually says at one part in the film, you know, like uh, when he's introducing himself to Melinda in the, the scene in the car showroom, he says, oh, my brother died. I'm still, yeah. getting, I'm still getting over that. And, um, yeah. So, it's, so you, you can't really ever see the Beach Boys live again. You well, know, not, well not, that, not the real Beach Boys. <laughs> but, uh, we're, but we're going to see uh, Brian Wilson. Uh, I know I am certainly in about six weeks. And I know that uh, Al Jardine is in his band. And yep. David Marks, who was like a Beach Boy for the first four Beach Boys albums before he went off to university to uh, to do, I'm not sure if it was architecture or something like that. But he came, he was invited back for the 50th anniversary. So, you know, I mean, to me, that's the real Beach Boys. Uh, and and this, this is for Tish, but somewhere in cyberspace exists a video of Gilbert... <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried and the Beach Boys performing, I'm sorry to say this, a theme from Problem Child. Oh, I've watched that. <laughs> since, since you mentioned it on the, Frank and, and Gil's Colossal Obsessions, and yeah. you, made, you made mention of that, I looked it up, yeah. and uh, I, I, but the words failed me. I know. They failed me too. I think Brian dodged that particular bullet. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I think that's the one benefit of his uh, wilderness years is the fact that he wasn't involved in that. <laughs> I might, I might right. have to play. I might have to play that song on the uh, on closing off the show. So to take uh, us out. To take us out. I think I'll be playing that. So well, one uh, quick thing I'll, I'll mention as well. Um, I don't know if Tish and Frank, you, you've ever seen this, but um, there's a cartoonist called Peter Bag. Um, oh, sure. And he made a series of animated shorts about uh, Murray Wilson's father. Uh, yes. Sorry. Uh, Brian Wilson's uh, father, Murray Wilson. They're out there on YouTube, and they're, they're worth tracking down. They're very funny. In fact, um, I'll post them in the group, the Facebook group, so uh, you can check do. them out. But, yeah, do, do uh, look out for them. They're very good, yeah. All right. So I, I think we've uh, said all that we uh, can for the moment about um, Love and Mercy and the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson and Mike Love and all those uh, associated people. So thank you very much for uh, tuning in. And i got to say my huge thanks to uh, you, Frank, for coming back for uh, for more punishment. You know, this is your second oh, time. Hey, listen, I'm, uh, thanks for asking me, and, Morris. It's fun. It's uh, it was a huge pleasure, and and thank you very much for your first time, Tish. Uh, so, just quickly, Tish, if people want to uh, look up your writings, uh, where can they find you? Is there a website? Well, they can Google me, um, Tish Greer. There's all kinds of information about me 
online. Mm-hmm. And um, also, they can go to thebroadside.com. There's little dashes between the words, or midcenturymodern.com, and kind of look for my stuff over there. I should have something coming out on the broadside in the next couple of days, which okay. could be. By the time this comes out, it should be on your article. Should be yeah, online. it should be live. Okay. Yeah. I've got uh, a picture of Mike Love in my head. He sat there with the headphones on and he's writing down these uh, <laughs> websites. Oh, yeah. So, you bet. Uh, yeah, do do your worst, Mike. <laughs> and and uh, Frank, for the, uh, for, I, I'm hoping that everyone who listens to this podcast is a fan of uh, uh, Gilbert Gottfried's amazing podcast. Oh, aren't you podcast. sweet? But please, tell the people out there, how can they find you and – and a quick rundown. It's Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. You can find us anywhere: Stitcher, SoundCloud, on iTunes, on GilbertPodcast.com. And speaking of rock and roll, we have a member of Spinal Tap joining us this week. Oh my oh, lord! Oh cool! Uh, <laughs> He will, be, he will be recorded and then uh, posted in a couple of weeks. Oh, I'm so Can you tell excited. us which one, or are you going to leave us with uh, with bated breath? <laughs> it's one of three. <laughs> uh, I expect you to be... One, one of them doesn't give interviews, so it, one, one of them doesn't, doesn't give interviews at all, so you can narrow it down between two now. Okay, yeah. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm immensely looking forward to that, and see if you can clear up any issues about uh, why drummers die on them. There you go. (laughs) Spontaneously exploding drummers? Yes. I'll get to the bottom of it, I promise. You know what? Years and years ago, I listened to this uh, radio program that we have here, and at the time, I hadn't seen Spinal Tap, so I didn't quite... I I, I took this seriously. It was only like, you know, uh, afterwards when I saw Spinal Tap that I knew what it meant, but this uh, radio show had mentioned that about the death of uh, Jeff Porcaro, who was a drummer of Toto and all round yes. session drummer. And so the, 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 no, the, the, the announcer said, well, he, he died in an unfortunate gardening accident. And I was, thinking, <laughs> I was thinking, really? What toxic chemicals was he using in the garden? It was only once I saw <laughs> Spinal Tap. Oh, right. Okay, gotcha. So, okay, so yes, Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast and... Frank and Gill's amazing colossal obsessions, and yes, quick the mini episodes. For what, for what that's about? What's that? Give uh, the listeners a quick run on what uh, Frank it's and just, Gil. Uh, those, are, those are little mini episodes that we do on Thursdays, and it's just Gilbert. It's just twenty minutes of Gilbert and I obsessing about uh, all manner of arcane things, everything from Network b- Battle of the Stars to uh, Gilbert <laughs> really terrible, unwatchable Bob Hope specials from the nineties. It's just a, a, a clearing house of our uh, of our depressing obsessions. <laughs> Joy, and uh, they're short mini episodes, little bite sized episodes for people that uh, don't have an hour or an hour and twenty to listen to the longer ones. But thanks for the plug, Mike. Uh, our, our absolute pleasure. I should also make mention that the it was there that I heard you talk about Love and Mercy for the first time. Yeah, that was our older format where we were talking about movies. We've 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 uh, we've shifted it up a bit, but we'll go back to that. All right, so I should give a uh, quick announcement as to what is happening next month. So we're currently in February of 2016. So in March of 2016 will be episode 26. Now, beginning of last year, I put out the word for uh, any of our listeners to send us some requests. And poor Eric Reanimator, he'd made a request and he's waited until 
2016. We should have done his film in 2015, but we're finally going to get around to it in March of 2016. And he's requested that we talk about the documentary about the band The Replacements called Colour Me Impressed. So finally, Eric, we're going to get around to uh, talking about that. Uh, I'll see if he wants to join us. But if not, then it'll be uh, back to uh, the core of us, Bernie, myself and Tim, when his uh, therapist has uh, covered him off from the Ishtar debacle of January 2016. Uh, Frank, if you can give that a listen and just sort of hear Tim collapse, it'll be... uh, Oh, I will. It'll be well worth your while. (laughs) So I think I've covered that. If you want to join the Facebook group for See Here, then uh, you can uh, look that up at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash See Here, S-E-E-H-E-A-R. You can download us, uh, look look for us on iTunes, or you can go to seehere.org podbean.com please let your friends know that we exist so we can get some people actually listening to the show that'd be rather nice Uh, and I think we've covered it off anything you want to add to that Bernie any final business Uh, no I don't think so Um, uh, you can check out the Facebook group as well Uh, did you just mention that I I, I did but that's okay Uh, sorry I'm just I'm posting those uh, Murray Wilson shows on uh, (laughs) on Facebook as we speak so uh, check them out they're, uh, they're good fun um, but no that, that's it really excellent alright well once again thank you very much to uh, Frank and Tish for uh, joining, thank you all. joining us yeah, thank you both very much it's appreciated thank we, you we'd love to have you back at uh, some future date for uh, an, another film we definitely uh, so uh, anyway I think uh, until next month everyone be nice to each other watch some great films listen to some wonderful music read up some uh, terrific books and please make sure that Mike Love never discovers this podcast, otherwise he'll sue our asses off. <laughs> so until next month, we'll uh, see you for uh, See Here in March. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.